Are you convinced that the biggest offence being committed in the world today is simply that billions of people have lived through today as if Jesus was not Lord and as if they owed him nothing? Let's pray as we stand. Father God, we've just sung the gospel. And please work in us now through your written word to become a church that believes it more and shares it more and grows by it more. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please do take a seat. And let me read you some of the questions I had to answer in the process of being ordained an elder of this church. Are you fully convinced that the Holy Scriptures contain all doctrine necessary for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And will you instruct the people committed to your care from them? Will you drive away all false and unsound doctrines that are contrary to God's word, and to this end both publicly and privately warn and encourage those committed to your care? Will you strive to live according to the teaching of Christ so that you and your family may be good examples to the flock of Christ? Well, tonight's passage in Acts is addressed to the elders of a church, which for us means at least the ordained senior leadership and the church wardens who have overall responsibility for this church. So the rest of you may already be thinking, this is not going to be that relevant to us. Let me tell you why it is. First, it's relevant to you because it will help you to understand our role. For example, people from time to time complain to me uh, about the way that we speak about false uh, doctrine and uh, moral teaching. And they ask, you know, why can't you just be positive? You'll see the answer to that tonight. Second, it's relevant to you because it will help you keep us accountable. Um, if there are things in this passage that we are not doing or not doing well, then you need to point those out to us. Third, it's relevant because it will help you help us in our role. As we will see, Bible teaching is central to it. And uh, you will help us by making that a priority, by not expecting us to do absolutely everything else that needs to be done. Fourth, it's relevant because for some of you here, this is your future life's work. This is what God wants you to do. Fifth, it's relevant to the many of you here with whom we share our responsibility for this church. For example, all the home group and small group leaders, the, the youth and children's leaders, and so on. Because this passage is not just what the likes of me should be doing for the whole of JPC, but what the likes of many of you should be doing for your part of it. And sixth, it's relevant to all of us because spiritual leadership is first and foremost by example. And in this passage, in many ways, you've just got a description of what an exemplary Christian looks like. So would you turn to page 929, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. Page 929, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. Uh, chapter 19 has already told us that the Apostle Paul spent three years in Ephesus 
He planted a church there and then he moved on and his travels have now brought him back near Ephesus. And so let's pick it up at verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders or literally presbyters uh, of the church to come to him. Just two things to notice about that word elders. Uh, one thing is that it includes the idea of literally being older. Um, back then, they didn't have our concept of middle age. Um, so up to about 35 or 40, you were young. Um, and over that age, you were old, elder. And so these elders would have been men old enough to have the necessary character, maturity, responsibility. The other thing to notice is that these are elders, plural. Paul always appointed teams of them. That's not to say that one of them shouldn't take the lead of the team, as David does here. It is to say that church leadership should never be a one-man band. So Paul calls them together, knowing he'll probably never see them again, and he leaves them with two convictions that are absolutely essential to gospel ministry. And for God to grow JPC, these two convictions will need to grow in each of us here who is a believer. And the first is conviction about the gospel. Conviction about the gospel. Look down to verse 18. And when they came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ." So Paul's reminding them of his ministry as if to say, what you saw in mine is a model for yours. And the first thing you see here in Paul is deep conviction about the gospel. So verse 21 again, he says, I spent my time testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just keep a, a paw or a notice sheet or something in Acts chapter 20 and turn back with me to page 885 to Luke chapter 24. Page 885, Luke chapter 24. Uh, Luke wrote both the gospel and Acts. So it's volume one and volume two. And uh, Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. This is the risen Jesus getting the apostles to understand what had just happened that first Easter. And so this is really the gospel in a nutshell. 2446. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And the question to you and I is this, are we convinced that is true? Are you convinced that Jesus died for the forgiveness of all your sins and the forgiveness of the sins of everyone that you will ever meet? Are you convinced that everyone you will ever meet needs that forgiveness? Are you convinced that even the most decent of them if they arrive at Judgment Day unforgiven, we'll hear the risen Lord Jesus say, you did not accept me as king and therefore you cannot be part of my kingdom. Are you convinced that Jesus rose from the dead 
and that he therefore is the Son of God as he said he was, and that he's alive, and that he is the ruler over everything in this universe. Are you therefore convinced that he is the rightful ruler, not just of you, but of everyone that you will ever meet? Every atheist, every agnostic, every Jew, every Muslim, every Buddhist, everyone. And are you convinced that the biggest offense being committed in the world today is simply that billions of people have lived through today as if Jesus was not Lord and as if they owed him nothing? And are you convinced that they are on collision course with him for the day of judgment, that there is such a day and that there is a heaven and a hell beyond? Let's turn back to Acts chapter 20 on page 929. Paul was convinced of everything I've just said. And that's why he spent his life, Acts chapter 20, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So testifying of repentance, which literally means turning, that means saying to people, Jesus is your rightful Lord. And so you need to stop living as if he wasn't or even wasn't there. And you need to turn and start life over again with Jesus in his rightful place in your life. That's repentance. Testifying of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is saying in addition, and the amazing thing is, if you do turn, he will forgive you and accept you and have you back, whoever you are and whatever you've done, whatever your track record, because he died for you on the cross to be able to forgive you everything that you've ever done or will do wrong, as we remember in this communion service. And maybe you still need to turn to Jesus and trust his forgiveness like that. You may, you may need more time to understand all this before you do. But there will be some people here who know enough. You know it's true. You've been through Christianity Explored, Discipleship Explored. You've, you've been around. Maybe you've grown up here through JPC. And you know it's true, you know you need to respond. That's the, that's the issue that you've put on ice. And I want to say, if that's you, please, tonight, pick up a copy of this booklet, Why Jesus, which goes over the gospel and over the response, and reply to God. Because if you do know it's true and you, you've just put that issue on ice, you are not saying nothing. You are saying no to God, and the danger with that is that it's habit-forming. But if you are already a Christian, how convinced are you about the gospel? I mean, being honest, none of us is as convinced as the Apostle Paul, or we would be gospel-sharing like he did. Um, and we all need, myself included, to grow in these convictions. And that's one of the aims of the teaching ministry of a church, and it takes time and you get a glimpse of that in the second half of verse 20, if you look at that, where Paul says, he spent those three years teaching you in public and from house to house. And that describes the often long process of sharing the gospel with people who are on their way to coming to faith, and then the lifelong process of building them up in their faith so that we all end up with sufficiently strong conviction that we can go out there and share the gospel, which is not easy, is it? And nor is it easy to be teaching the whole Bible to Christians, given the way that we all struggle with God's will in some areas 
at least of our lives. I mean, how was your home group last Wednesday, for instance? So it's no wonder Paul says twice, I didn't shrink from saying certain things. Have a look at verse 20, where he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, that is good for you spiritually. In other words, I said what people needed to hear, not what they might have wanted to hear. And then look on to verse 27, where he says in there, for I did not shrink, sorry, over the page, verse 27, He says, therefore, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I didn't avoid certain parts of the Bible because I knew that they would be hard to take or cut across sensitivities. So if we want to see God grow JPC, then we need to pray and work for these convictions about the gospel to grow in us. As that happens, it will make us more outward-looking. In David's article in this month's newsletter, um, he quotes one church growth expert who says this, for many, the status quo has much greater appeal than growth, and taking care of today's members is a higher priority than reaching people beyond the fellowship. And a guy called Richard Baxter, hundreds of years ago, wrote this classic book, The Reformed Pastor, and he testifies to that tension between the outsiders and the insiders, and he says clearly which way we need to let ourselves be pulled. Listen to this. We must labor in a special manner for the conversion of the unconverted. This is the first and greatest thing we must drive at. The misery of the unconverted is so great, it calls loudest to us for compassion. And by contrast, he says, if a truly converted sinner do fall, it will only be into sin which can be pardoned. He's not in the hazard of damnation by it, as others are. We need to hear the kind of plain speaking of former centuries, don't we? You see what he's saying? He's saying, if you are already in the lifeboat, then you need to give your primary attention to the people who are still in the water, as opposed to making life in the lifeboat everything we might want it to be. And so like Paul in verse 21, if you look back to uh, verse 21, Like Paul in verse 21, that will mean testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, which meant everyone, uh, people like us, Paul was a Jew, and people unlike us, which is probably best done by more church planting. And it will mean doing that and persisting with that uh, with apparently hard and unpromising people like the Jews, who by and large rejected Paul wherever he went. But he never gave up on them, even though it cost him dear. So, for example, at the end of verse 19, he talks about the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, some of which nearly left him dead. And then if you look on to verse 23, he says he's heading for Jerusalem, which was Jewish HQ, not knowing how it'll pan out, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel 
of God's grace. In other words, to see Jesus glorified as he should be and fellow sinners saved as they need to be means more to me than personal comfort, personal safety, even my own life. And it will make all the difference to the future of JPC if we set ourselves to pray that we become people who move towards being able to say that. Before we leave conviction about the gospel, we get two glimpses here of how Paul never forgot that people's eternal destinies are at stake in all this. That's what behind verse 19, where he says he's been serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Have you ever felt like that? Or literally wept over someone you know who's given the gospel a look and then just walked away? or a professing Christian who has walked away or is currently walking away from Christ. The other glimpse of his eternal outlook is in verse 26, where he says, if you look on to verse 26, he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. In other words, I've told you the gospel. I've told you what you need to know to be put right with God, to come safely through the day of judgment. And if you now reject that, I'm innocent of where that ultimately takes you. And I want to ask, will you aim to be able to say that to the people who are around you? You won't be able to say it now because evangelism is a process. And the right response to what I'm saying is not that we just race out and blurt out the gospel at everyone uh, with no wisdom about how and when that's done. But that's what we should be aiming to be able to say. So the first essential is conviction about the gospel. The second essential is conviction about the church. Look on to verse 28. Conviction about the church. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, some people read this passage as if only now does Paul get on to um, talking about what the elders should do, and it turns out that it's all about looking after the church, in other words, those who are already Christians. Now, that is way off, because in the verses we've just looked at, Paul has been holding up his ministry as a model for theirs. So the elders' first concern has got to be for people outside the church who don't yet know Christ. But then they're called to have equal concern for those who do. So let's have a look at what that looks like. First of all, verse 28. He says, pay careful attention, elders, to yourselves. Or as Paul wrote to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself means on your own walk with the Lord and your example, because spiritual leadership flows out of your own walk with the Lord, and first and foremost, as I've said, it is by example. And that's why, and you know this, when you're not on good spiritual form, you don't want to do whatever ministry it is that you have here. And you find yourself awkwardly, silently, inwardly saying, do as I say, not as I do. That's not the place to be. I remember John Chapman, the, uh, the Aussie evangelist, saying on this, you are a Christian first and a Christian minister of whatever sort second. 
So don't let ministry become an excuse for being less than Christian. So there have been days this week when I've been pushed, when I could have said, you know, I haven't got time to have my own quiet time because I need to prepare a sermon. There are times when I'd be tempted to say, there are so many Christians who need and take my time one-to-one that I can't do any personal evangelism. We've got to leave that to the rest of them. Okay, now both of those are making ministry an excuse for being less than Christian. So keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, says Paul to Timothy. In other words, on whether you are being faithful to the Bible. So youth and children people, do not let snazzy presentation mask careless Bible handling. Small group leaders here, never go into your group underprepared, saying to yourself, I'll wing it. It's just a discussion. Verse 28 again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, literally to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, or as the footnote says, a better translation I think would be with the blood of his own, in other words, his own son. In this book, uh, the Reformed pastor, Richard Baxter, unpacks that one verse, 28, in 250 pages. And you would not thank me for following suit. Um, I could unpack the word overseer, which is about management, supervision, guardianship. I could unpack the word shepherd, which to quote someone, blends the ideas of authority and leadership with self-sacrifice, tenderness, wisdom, hard work, loving care, constant watchfulness. Shepherding requires long hours, complete attention, knowledge of the sheep, good management, and courage in the face of danger. But the main thing to see here again is Paul's conviction, this time about the church. He says, verse 28, it's the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own. So God bought JPC. God bought this church of believers with the blood of Christ. God owns it. God loves it. God has made some of us responsible for all of it, many of us responsible for part of it. And he's saying to us here, never forget that this is my church and you are answerable to me for how you care for it and indeed behave in it. Here is Richard Baxter again in The Reformed Pastor. Quote, Hear these arguments of Christ whenever you feel yourself grow dull and careless in ministry. Did I die for these souls and will you not look after them? Were they worth my blood and are they not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and to save what was lost and you will not go to the next door or street or village to seek them? How small is your condescension and labor compared to mine? I debased myself to this, but it's your honor to be so employed. And Baxter concludes, every time we look on our congregations, let us remember that they were purchased with the blood of Christ and therefore should be regarded by us with deepest interest and most tender affection. Is that how you see your home group? Or the difficult kid in your children's group? The awkward customer in Christianity Explored? And then verse 29, Paul highlights the main reason why elders must pay careful attention. 
It's because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, which has the sense of lovingly warning and correcting everyone with tears. So, you know, <clears throat> why can't we just be positive? The answer is because there's a mass of false teaching and Bible twisting going on that you need to be alerted to. And as Martin Luther said, you have to fight where the battle is. So for example, we don't want to be talking about homosexuality as and when we do, but that's where the battle is in the culture. And as you know, it is invading the churches. So we need the convictions about this church that I want any babysitter to have about my children. This church is God's baby, and we have to be ultra careful with it and give and feed it nothing that he wouldn't want it given and to protect it from any harm. But the ultimate conviction about the church is in verse 32, where Paul says to them, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he's leaving this church in the care of relatively young Christians, knowing the cultural pressures, knowing the dangers from false teaching. And humanly speaking, you might have wondered, is he going to survive? And that's where you need the ultimate conviction about the church, which is that God creates it as he brings people to faith in Jesus, as he then builds them up through his word and protects and keeps them all the way to their inheritance when Jesus comes again. That's what Paul is saying in verse 32. Now I commend you, I commit you, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you that inheritance. So can God enable JPC to survive whatever happens in the wider church and culture in the next few generations? Yes. Can God enable JPC to thrive and grow to 2,000 in multiple congregations on this site and in other parts of the city? Yes. When that calls on us to give large sums of money, as we did for Three Osborne Road, as we did for Holy Trinity Gateshead, how can we know that that money, what it's being given to, is going to survive? The answer is we entrust it to God, knowing that he is in the business of building his church. And if we want him to use us in that, we need this conviction about the gospel and this conviction about the church. And if there was time, I'd also say from the rest of the passage that we need care about motives and care about people, but I'm out of time, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for the model of his life and ministry, and we pray for ourselves what we have seen in him. We fall so far short of it, and we pray by your Spirit, please work in us the same conviction and concern for your glory and concern about people's eternal destiny and willingness to suffer and sense of accountability to you. 
and the same trust that he had in you for the future spread of the gospel and growth of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.